as we continue our sermon series in the book of Matthew, and as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look today especially at verses 31 and 32. I asked Lisa to read the paragraph before which Josh preached from last week to kind of get us a little bit of a running head start as we listen. But in our passage today, Jesus says some things about a heavy topic. He talks about divorce. This topic is not very funny, so I didn't bring my funniest jokes for you today. In fact, the opposite of being funny, this topic is deeply painful to many of us. Because divorce has already touched so many of our lives. I'm not even talking about how we've all been affected by Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Sorry, I said no jokes. But For some of us, we were introduced to the topic of divorce by our parents at a young age. Maybe it was a past marriage in your own life story. Maybe it was a friend's marriage or a family member's marriage. Maybe divorce is currently a gut-wrenching question for you, like right now, today, while you're sitting here listening. This topic has already affected so many of us. And I feel like I need to be very clear up front about two things Two things which might sound almost contradictory, but two things which are really important. Two things that I think I owe it to you to say up front before I even begin unpacking what our passage of Scripture has to say. On the one hand, one of the things that I believe I need to say to you very clearly is that is that as Christians, we need to speak up today for the dignity of marriage itself. And so I want to encourage all of us as we're listening to the teaching of Jesus, I want to encourage all of us to hold marriage in honor as a divinely designed covenant relationship for life. Jesus himself taught us a very high view of marriage saying what God has joined together Let not man separate. So even though we live in a culture that has a relatively low view of marriage and a culture that tends to, if we're honest, promote kind of easy divorces, even though we live in that kind of cultural moment as Christians, we must hold marriage in honor as followers of Jesus. And that's one thing that I want to advocate for one thing that I want to say very clearly today. We need to hold marriage in honor. But on the other hand, I also want to speak up not only for the dignity of marriage, but also for the dignity of those who have been through divorces in your own life. Much too often, a past divorce in your life story brings with it, unfortunately, kind of a stigma. And that can feel even more true in the church than it does in other places, right? Divorce can feel like a giant scarlet letter of shame. The only thing that others see or think about you anymore. 
But here's the thing. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke so highly about the institution of marriage, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Our Lord Jesus, who spoke so highly about the dignity of marriage, also spoke graciously with the woman at the well. He also treated with dignity that woman who had had seven husbands. And he told her that the Father is seeking worshipers such as her. And so as a Christian, I want to speak up for the dignity of marriage. And also as a Christian, I want to speak up for the dignity of our brothers and sisters. Even for the dignity of our brothers and sisters right here in this room today. Whose marriages in the past have ended in divorce. I want to help us hold marriage in honor as a divinely designed covenant for life without making divorce seem like some kind of unpardonable sin or a scarlet letter kind of thing. Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma who has also been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. And at one time he was my theology professor. And in one of his books, Sam Storms puts the issue like this. He says, our challenge is to mingle the call to obedience with tears of compassion. That's a good line. Our call is to be tender even to those who have failed without compromising the high standards of Scripture. Here then, he says, is the twofold appeal that I have made to people in our church. He says, to the divorced, and so if you've lived through a divorce yourself in the past, this is what Sam Storms would say to you, and I'm reading it because it's what I would want to say to you as well. To the divorced, I say that my emphasis on the importance of marriage and honoring one's vows and fighting to stay together does not mean that we don't love you and care about you or that you aren't wanted or can't fit in or can never be active in ministry. But to the married, and I know this will feel almost contradictory to hear these two things, but I believe them both and I believe they both fit together in the congregation of Jesus Christ. To the married... I say that my emphasis on the dignity of the divorced person and their value to God and the forgiveness and restoration that is available through the cross does not mean that we can take a flippant or casual attitude toward our marriages. I think Sam Storms is on to something here. When we talk about a topic like divorce, it calls for both conviction and compassion. Both Christ-like convictions and Christ-like compassion. And the devil would love for us, he would love for you to walk out of this room today either with Christ-like convictions or with Christ-like compassion instead of walking out of here with both. So we must be people as followers of Jesus who speak up for the dignity of marriage, 
But as followers of Jesus, we must also be people who speak up for the dignity of those whose marriages have ended in divorce. If in some point in this sermon you feel like one side of that or another is being emphasized too loudly, remember that Jesus who said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The same Jesus, the real Jesus, also said to the woman at the well that the Father was seeking worshipers such as her. And after that really, really, really long introduction, let's look together at the text of what our Lord Jesus Christ has to say about this challenging topic of divorce. Verse 31, look with me if you would there. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, or that could be translated, he must, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So the text begins with what has been said already. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's this series of moments where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. He's correcting incorrect assumptions or interpretations that would have been common among his hearers. And now he gets to something he wants to say about divorce. It's also been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But the question is this, who said that? Where does that come from? Is that in the Bible? And the answer to that question is is that it sounds kind of like something that Moses says in the Bible. But it's not exactly what Moses says in the Bible. Are you tracking with me? In other words, Jesus is not critiquing the teaching of Moses. He's critiquing the Pharisees' interpretation of Moses. The passage in question from the writings of Moses from the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 through 4, which starts out like this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, dot, dot, dot. And so the law goes in the law of Moses. But pay attention to what's going on here. This passage is not a passage that directs how to get a certificate of divorce, much less is it a passage that says you have to get a certificate of divorce in order to do a divorce the right way. It's a passage that assumes divorce and remarriage. A passage that permits divorce and remarriage, but permits it in the kind of way that it just gracious, it's God's way of kind of graciously saying, I know y'all are fallen people living in a fallen world. And so, yes, divorce and remarriage is going to be a part of the equation. In the law of Moses, God gave some kind of permission related to divorce and remarriage, but where Moses had given permission, the Pharisees made human-sized regulations. You want to know how to get divorced? We'll teach you how to do it. Isn't that kind of a normal human impulse? 
God in His mercy says, I'll permit divorce. And then humans say, great, let's see how far we can get away with this stuff. So imagine a good Jewish kid back in the day who grew up knowing the Ten Commandments, including you shall not commit adultery. And he grows up and he gets married. But then he sees another woman who seems a little more interesting to his wandering heart. And then he remembers that he doesn't want to commit adultery. That's wrong and it would have a lot of consequences. But he also remembers that the law of Moses says something about a certificate of divorce. So he goes to the rabbi at the local congregation and he asks about this certificate of divorce stuff and the rabbi begins to explain, sure, we've got teachings about that. If you want to divorce your wife, all you need to do is find some indecency in her and then issue her a certificate of divorce and bada bing, bada boom, you're on your way. What do you think is going to happen next? He's going to start inventing reasons to find some indecency in his wife, right? In fact, ancient historians tell us that this whole thing led to a trend throughout Jewish culture in those days and a debate began to grow about just how much indecency was enough to count as a reason for divorce. And one teacher before the time of Jesus, known as Rabbi Hillel, who lived about a hundred years before Jesus, he had gone into great detail about what things might justify a certificate of divorce. And according to Rabbi Hillel, those reasons for divorce could include something even as simple as a husband's disappointment that his wife was not a very good cook. So your wife burns dinner, aha! I have an indecency. Time for the certificate of divorce. Or if a husband just doesn't like the sound of his wife's voice anymore. Aha, we've got some indecency. You can issue a certificate of divorce. Or, according to Rabbi Hillel, even if a husband feels like his wife isn't attractive enough, According to Rabbi Hillel, that would be enough reason for him to call that indecency and to issue issue a certificate of divorce and then seek after whatever or whoever it may be that his heart desires next. To be sure, in Jesus' day, that was not the only way that Jewish people understood the issue of divorce. But according to the ancient historian known as Josephus, Rabbi Hillel's view was the most common view in Jesus' day and especially among the Pharisees. They took a moment in the law of Moses that recognized divorce and remarriage and they turned it into a whole set of rules that directed divorce and remarriage. You don't like your wife? Just find some indecency and give her a certificate of divorce And move on. This is how many of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day talked about divorce. 
And this is important for us to recognize today because sometimes we imagine that people in Jesus' day, that they like all got married and stayed married their whole life and never even imagined the possibility of divorce. Sometimes friends and Facebook posts may wrongly give us the impression that Jesus is just promoting in this passage an outdated kind of ethics about marriage because people back then hadn't yet discovered this wonderful thing called divorce. Instead of realizing that the words of Jesus spoke with counter-cultural clarity in his own generation. And Jesus' words about divorce continue to speak with counter-cultural clarity in every generation. And right now, you and I, like if, if you live in America today, you might be like, no, I'm, I'm countercultural. I'm good. I got this Jesus stuff. But listen, if you live in America today, you are living in a you do you world that is seeking to disciple you in a you do you fulfillment framework for your life. You live in a you-do-you culture that's seeking to disciple you into believing that the best decisions you can make are the ones that feel most fulfilling for you personally. And so it seems that American culture has actually adopted a surprisingly pharisaical kind of view on this issue. Look, if your spouse has become boring to you, Or if after a few years you don't like your spouse's voice. Or if you feel that you could better pursue your dreams without your spouse. Or if you currently feel more attracted to other people. Then you do you. Just go to court. Go through the right steps. And get a certificate of divorce. And you'll be on your way. You see, then the way of Jesus is not just a matter of getting back to an old-fashioned set of family values from some previous culture. Those cultures were usually more messed up than we like to admit anyway. Nor is the way of Jesus to follow your own desires wherever they may lead you. If your desires that led you to want to be with the person you're with now, now lead you to want to be with another person, maybe your desires are a little more fickable than you'd like to admit. The way of Jesus is not to get back to some old-fashioned family values. The way of Jesus is not to just you do you. The way of Jesus is to follow the one who calls us to a kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. According to the real Jesus, Our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of those who say, if anyone wants to divorce their spouse, just make sure you take all the proper steps and you're good to go. So we've looked briefly at what has been said, according to verse 31, but now we need to pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 32, right? Look there with me if you would. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And by the way, if we're tripping up over why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that she commits adultery rather than saying that he commits adultery, it's just one example. And I'd point out, by the way, as a pastor, I know that when it comes to topics like divorce and remarriage, there are so many unique situations that I won't have time to address every kind of unique situation from up here on stage today. But if at some point in this message there are questions about your unique situation or your unique family background, I'd love to say that I or one of the elders would actually be honored to sit down and listen carefully and maybe cry as appropriate and maybe talk with you about that. There are many different ways these things can work out. And in any case, in Jesus' other teachings, he sometimes turns this around. For example, in Matthew 19.9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. So there's your scenario. But what's going on here in Matthew 5.32? In the previous paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last week, Jesus taught that adultery is not only when you physically sleep with someone who is not your spouse. It's not only that. Jesus says, in effect, even if you lust after someone in your mind, let's call it what it is, Jesus says, it's the sin of adultery. Even if it's still just the seedling form of the sin of adultery there in your mind, it still has the DNA of adultery to it, even if it's not yet full grown, right? Well, now Jesus kind of turns that question around and he kind of says, he kind of addresses the issue. What if you fix that problem, so to speak? By divorcing your spouse and marrying someone you feel more attracted to at this moment. Jesus says, in that case, you are still driving full speed into adultery. Jesus is saying, in other words, you can't fool God by finding loopholes in the law of Moses. Did you really think God was just some petty circuit judge? In calling for a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, let's call the Pharisees' way of dealing with divorce what it is. It's just another path to adultery. I have a friend um, who remembers with a lot of pain his parents' divorce when he was in elementary school. He was a grade school kid when he got in the back of his family car, his dad in the front seat. He found a wallet on the ground. So he said, hey dad, I found your wallet. His dad said, let me see that wallet. And it was not his dad's wallet. The wallet belonged to his best friend's dad. His best friend's dad spent a lot of time around their house. He felt like their two families were really close. 
His mom seemed to love it when his best friend's dad came over. But why was his best friend's dad's wallet in the back seat of the family car? What happened next is that his parents divorced and his mom married his best friend's dad. And I guess that's where many movies often leave us simply with happily ever after vibes. Two people who felt unfulfilled found someone who recreated that sense of magic. And they end up married. Some of us can kind of cringe as we hear that story. My friend did not giggle. He didn't laugh. He didn't even just cringe. My 40-something-year-old friend cried his eyes out with me as he told me the longer version of this story, and I cried with him. He cried because he realizes that that divorce and remarriage that he watched, it led to years of pain in his life, years of pain in his siblings' lives, Years of pain in his friends' lives. Years of pain in his dad's life. Years of pain in ways that he still has very conflicting emotions about. Years of pain even in his mom's life as well. You see, Jesus tells us that simply offering the proper certificate of divorce and then moving on to the next relationship You can go through all the right external motions. But Jesus says, let's call it what it is. That story of divorce and remarriage is really just a story of adultery. The only difference is the paperwork. And in Jesus' day, you could find a Pharisee who would allow you to get a divorce in order to pursue someone who seemed more exciting. In our day, you can find a friend or a counselor or an inspiring Facebook post. Maybe you can even find friends in church that will encourage you to get a divorce in order to pursue whatever seems more fulfilling to you. But that's why in Jesus' day and in ours, men and women need to hear the voice of Jesus saying, I know you've heard different things about divorce. But now I say to you, let's call that kind of divorce what it is. It's the path of adultery. What difference does that make for us, brothers and sisters? The teaching of Jesus should lead us to take fidelity and faithfulness in our marriages much more seriously than any of our neighbors seem to think we should. The teaching of Jesus should lead us to take fidelity and faithfulness in our marriages more seriously even than the scribes and the Pharisees. Important question, though. Important question. Are there ever times when it's appropriate to divorce? 
And how would Jesus answer that question? In Matthew 5.32, Jesus challenges cultural ideas about easy divorce for any old reason, but he also recognizes something else that might be countercultural in another way. He recognizes that while he holds this very high view of marriage, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He also seems to suggest that there are exceptions. In fact, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5.32. Jesus says in Matthew 5.32, quote, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Maybe we need to pay attention to that. Sometimes it's called the acceptive clause from Jesus. And it creates questions that sometimes pastors and Christians have to wrestle with a little bit. Actually, if we start wrestling with the acceptive clause here in Matthew 5.32, it will probably lead us pretty quickly to Matthew 19, where Jesus offers a longer teaching, actually the New Testament's longest teaching, about divorce and remarriage. Let's listen to part of that passage for a minute. It comes in the form of a story in Matthew 19. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they want to test him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Notice how Jesus answers. We're going to have to think about this for a second, but notice how Jesus answers. Is it okay to get a divorce for any reason? Jesus' answer, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together let not man separate now pay attention to what Jesus is doing here Um, at first it sounds like Jesus is being a jerk (laughs) let's just be honest he gets a clear straightforward question are there legitimate reasons for divorce and at first it sounds like Jesus is just not willing to talk to them why because he doesn't answer their question directly Jesus doesn't want to start the discussion by talking about divorce. Jesus wants to start the discussion by talking about the divine design for marriage instead of starting the discussion by talking about divorce itself. And so Jesus answers with good, rich theology from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, talking about the fact that God designed marriage himself. And God designed marriage to be this two people become one kind of covenant relationship. No longer two separate things, but kind of woven together or kind of welded together or kind of having their lives intertwined like a plant that is grafted into another so that you can't just separate them without ripping something. And Jesus says, I know you're asking me about whether or not some people can get a divorce, but I want to talk about what God designed marriage to be. You see, Jesus' first response is to refocus the discussion away from divorce to the divine design for marriage. And maybe, maybe we need to pay attention to Jesus' strategy here. 
Listen, young people, let me talk to young people who have not been married yet, all right? Teenagers, younger singles, whatever. You haven't been married yet. Let me talk to you for a second. You need to hear what Jesus is teaching here because the best time to start developing biblical convictions about God's good design for marriage is not after you get married, but before you get married. And so you're, if you're in a before-you-get-married phase of life, I want to encourage you, the way that Jesus answers this question is really important. You know what's more important than knowing when you can get a divorce? What's more important is knowing what God designed marriage originally to be. A beautiful covenantal relationship in which two people's lives are joined together for life. This is a good and right and beautiful design. A good and right and beautiful gift that God has given to us. Married people, whether you've thought about divorce or not, let me tell you as a pastor that the most important thing for you to focus on is not under what circumstances am I allowed to get a divorce. That's to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. The most important thing married for you to pay attention to is not under what circumstances am I allowed to get a divorce. The most important thing for you to pay attention to is what God designed marriage to be. A two- Become one covenant relationship for life. And maybe you'd even say, I feel like I made a mistake in getting married. But Jesus wants to have a word with you when he says what God joined together. This wasn't just your idea or your invention or your doing or your mistake as you think about it or as the enemy wants to convince you that it is. What God has joined together. Do you realize that God put you together with that person that you're married to right now? On purpose? For good? So Jesus' response to the question about whether divorce is ever permissible begins with this kind of recognition that Jesus doesn't prefer to talk about the, re- the times when divorce is okay. Jesus prefers to talk about the divine design for marriage, which I think is instructive for us. But Jesus is pressed further in Matthew 19 by the same Pharisees who say to him, why then did Moses, like they're like, come on, like we hear what you're saying, we know our theology too, we've also read Genesis 2, but la la la, we're not listening because that's not what we're interested in. What we want to know is why then did Moses give us this idea of the certificate of divorce? And he said to them, you know why God gave a certificate of divorce? Because of your hardness of heart. That one hurts a little bit. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's not saying Moses made a mistake. That one doesn't belong in God's word. He's not going back and erasing parts of the Bible or cutting them out like Thomas Jefferson famously tried to do. Cut out parts of the Bible that we don't like or aren't comfortable with. 
Jesus isn't going back and trying to cut out the, the, the assumption of Moses that there are such things as divorce and remarriage. What he's doing is he's going back and saying, yes, Moses did give some directions about those fallen world situations where divorce and remarriage happens. Yes, Jesus does give some, or yes, Moses did give some instruction about that, but you know why? Is because this is a fallen world and because God in his mercy understands that some people's hearts are really hardened. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, there's that acceptive clause again. He commits adultery. What's up with that exception about the people who commit sexual immorality? I think the idea is that marriage is a covenant relationship. And when that covenant relationship is kind of broken by something as extreme as sexual immorality that gives a certain kind of, let's call it a fallen world freedom, a certain kind of fallen world freedom to followers of Jesus to say, I've tried, but I'm done. And so if we take it a step further and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Later on in the New Testament, there's another acceptive clause out there as the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament is talking about believers who are married and he gets into a really complicated scenario about a believer who's married to someone who's not a believer and he goes through these different scenarios. Remember what I said a minute ago? There's a lot of complex differences and sometimes they're handled a little bit differently here or there. Paul is getting way into one of these really complex scenarios and as he gets into into it, he, um, do we have this on the screen here? Um, he says, Paul says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. You're free, in other words. God has called you to peace. And I, I'm, for the sake of time, I'm not going to dig into that far. But here again, the New Testament is saying there are certain kinds of cases It's interesting, Paul doesn't feel like he's contradicting Jesus' teaching about accepting cases of sexual immorality. Why? Because in certain kinds of cases, I think where the marriage covenant has been broken, it gives a certain kind of permission or a certain kind of freedom for followers of Jesus to divorce and to move on in life. But here's the thing, even as Jesus... Back in Matthew 19, or back in Matthew 5, even as Jesus recognizes there are moments when the marriage covenant is broken, even then, Jesus doesn't want to follow the Pharisees and put freedom to divorce right alongside God's original design for marriage and say, these are two equally good things. Pick your own adventure. It's all good. Even then, Jesus wants to put an emphasis on God's good design even as he recognizes there are certain exceptions. And you know, I see this in people's experience as Christians. As a pastor, I've sat down a number of times with people who 
whose spouses have committed adultery. Those are hard conversations to have. Sometimes the spouse is there, sometimes not. There's always a lot of tears involved. Deeply broken hearts, of course. And really, the first time I sit down with somebody, I'm just listening, probably crying with them, probably praying. And if I say anything, it's probably just along the lines of saying, listen carefully, there is far more hope than you realize because there is far more grace than you realize even right now. I probably won't say a whole lot more than that. But at some point in the course of walking alongside a brother or sister whose spouse has committed adultery, we need to start talking about these things. And at some point, I'll usually gently tell them, you know, Jesus Jesus teaches that you don't have to stay in your marriage. It's permissible for you to get a divorce. You're free to go through that door if that's the doorway you want to go through. But you also have the option to fight for your marriage and to seek to make it healthier as long as there's any hope. And not every time. You know, sometimes believers take that doorway out and I don't hold it against them. Jesus doesn't hold it against them and I don't want to either. But more often than not, what I find when Christians are in that scenario is they're not saying, what's the fastest way out of this relationship? They're saying, thank you for telling me that I'm free. I need to hear that. But I want to stick in this thing and fight for my marriage as long as there's any hope left. And time after time, I've seen God get involved in broken and painful situations and shine His redeeming light as far as the pain has been felt. So, We've seen what has been said. If you want to get a divorce, just write a certificate and do it the right way, you're good. We've heard Jesus' teaching, which calls us to a radical kind of faithfulness that exceeds the faithfulness that was taught by the scribes and Pharisees. We've seen that there are exceptions to Jesus' teaching. So in some cases, divorce is permissible. To be sure. But where does all of that leave us? Before we wrap up, or as we wrap up, I don't want you to miss who the I is in verse 32. But I say to you. Some of us may feel like Jesus' teaching is impossibly difficult or even burdensome or even challenging. Some of us may hear Jesus' teaching and we may feel the weight of past decisions pulling us down. But I want you to hear the I in verse 32. The one who calls us to this kind of radical fidelity is the one who in radical fidelity loved us and, and gave Himself as the atoning sacrifice to wash away all our guilt and sin. 
The one who says, I say to you, is the one who loves us and intends to be united together with us, not just for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or if we're lucky, 60 years, but for all of eternity. You know what the New Testament says about this two become one idea? The book of Ephesians chapter 5 talks again about this thing back in Genesis chapter 2. Two become one. God's beautiful design for marriage. But then Paul says, Paul says something remarkable about it. He adds, he adds to that something remarkable. Can you put it up on the screen for us? We got it? Yeah, there, no. Ephesians 5. Nope. Is there more? Nope. Okay. Man. We love you guys back there, and I'm sorry. I probably didn't set you up for success today. Let's blame that one on me. But in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul goes back to that idea of two become one, and then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying to you that it refers to Christ and the church. Which is to say that profound idea of two people becoming one in a lifelong covenant is not just designed by God for the good of society and for your personal happiness. It's not mainly about your sexual fulfillment. It's not mainly about having more kids. This two become one in a lifelong covenant relationship is designed by God with one greater purpose. From the beginning, it was designed to point to the everlasting loving union between Jesus Christ and His blood-bought people, His blood-washed people, His forever people, the church. And so your temporary marriage, which you're in right now for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years if you're married, your temporary marriage has this purpose beyond your personal happiness. It has this great purpose of pointing you to the greater marriage that is yet to come. To that greater and everlasting relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us and plans to be united forevermore without end with us. And so, if you're here today... Regardless of your marriage status, the gospel tells us, yes, you were made for a fulfilling relationship. And no, there is not a marriage in this life that will ever deliver everything you dreamed. But listen, you, regardless of your relationship status... You were in fact made for a greater marriage. A marriage in which your heavenly husband would do whatever is necessary in order to make you his own forevermore. And in the security of his great love for you, he sends you to go out and shine his love wherever you go. So for those who are disappointed by life's unexpected results so far, don't forget that there's a better marriage yet to come. And for those who are single today, 
don't forget that there's something better than these 10 or 20 or 30 year long marriages anyway. And for those who are married, do whatever you can to make this marriage reflect that marriage. To those who are married, do whatever you can to make this temporary marriage reflect that eternal marriage. If you need to get counseling from a professional counselor to help you process years of baggage, get counseling. If you need to confess something silently before the Lord before you leave today, start confessing it now. If you need to bring a few friends into how hard things have felt lately, bring a few friends in. If you need to get prayer today before you go, get prayer today before you go. For the married, do whatever you can to make your this life marriage reflect that eternal marriage which is to come. And in all of that, don't forget that there really is far more hope than you realize because there really is far more grace than you realize. See, before you attempt to live out the radical fidelity that Jesus calls for, we need to experience the radical fidelity that He's demonstrated and poured out His life in order to bring us into. Greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for us.